Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Previously on Hi-Fi Nation. Parapsychologists are scientists. We looked at the scientific study of ESP. And I was like, damn, you're good. What I found was that in the best studies in parapsychology, people do perform better than random guessing at mind-to-mind communication or reading the minds of their future selves. But is the right conclusion that there is ESP out there? If you accept the statistics of their research and this rule that statistical significance means you found something real, it's very hard to resist the conclusion that there are small effects of ESP all around us. Today, finally, I'm going to look at how this rule works in the mainstream human sciences. First, psychology, the study of the human mind. I'm Brian Nosek. I am the executive director at the Center for Open Science and a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia. We did a study where we were thinking about what might people on the extremes, either at the extreme left or extreme right, how might they be different in interesting ways from people that are moderate? And one of the studies was led by Matt Motel. Matt Motel was a graduate student in Brian's lab, and he devised this technique to try and test people's color vision. You give them a colored word on a page, and you have them look on a color swatch and have them find the color of the word and you measure how accurate they are. You have extreme right-wing people do it, extreme left-wing people do it, and then you have moderates do it. You're trying to find out if being on a political extreme affects the accuracy of your color vision. And what he found, astonishingly, was that people who were further out on the left and right were less able to identify accurately the shades of gray than people who are in the political center. So literally, people who are politically extreme, are not able to see shades of gray. They see the world in more black and white terms. In academic psychology, this kind of finding is a big deal. We were like, oh my God, this is going to make his career as a senior grad student. So he's looking, you know, getting close to being on the market. He is really enthused. We are both really enthused. The lab sees it and is very enthused. And we say, well, okay, that is a crazy finding, but totally cool. I mean, think about it. They already had the best title for their paper, Fifty Shades of Grey. That book was an enormous bestseller at the time. And it's an age of extremist politics in America. So you're basically just handing print media and science bloggers clickbait on a platter. The easy thing to do, which would be playing into the incentives of what is at stake for Matt and his career, what's at stake for my career, is to have taken that initial finding and published just that. Not bother with doing a replication, because why would we do a replication? The only thing that we can do by doing a replication is lose this golden nugget. There's no requirement of researchers in psychology that before they publish a finding, they have to run the study again to make sure it works again. The original study had almost 2,000 participants, too, so it's not like they had a small sample. 
And last week I talked about this rule of statistical significance, P less than 0.05, as the standard for drawing a conclusion from your study. Nosik and his student, Matt Motil, got P less than 0.01. By any of the standards at the time, they did fine. And so we ran another study, did it again, and we got nothing. Didn't replicate it. That's the end of the story. Well, it was almost the end of the story. Brian Nosek got worried. How many other flashy findings out there in psychology were like this? A key aspect of a scientific claim becoming credible is that you don't have to rely on me, the originator of that finding, to say it's true. A scientific claim becomes credible because you can reproduce it. An independent person can follow the same methodology and obtain that result. And if that doesn't happen, claims that are supposed to be scientific claims become less credible. It's just a core value of what makes science science. In the daily practice of science, it isn't often how research is done. It's not how research is done. The way that research is done is that you publish the Fifty Shades of Grey finding and then enter the pantheon of cool psychological findings. A lot of what you hear reported in the popular science press is like this. Not everything, but a lot. A flashy finding supported by a single study based on statistical significance. Um, Andrew Gelman, professor of statistics and political science at Columbia University. There's a term someone came up with called the myth of the single study. And if you look at statistics textbooks or econometrics textbooks, quantitative social science textbooks, they have these little studies which are supposed to be definitive. There's this paradigm in social science, we call it the stylized fact. Stylized sounds negative, but it's not. It's, it's supposed to be sort of a true fact that's presented in a clear way. So an example of a stylized fact would be that presidential incumbent candidates do better when the economy is better. So in social science, we, we do these studies and we get these stylized facts and then we build our theories around them. Flashy results that make for a good story around a stylized fact. It's just candy to us, the everyday consumer of news. It makes us feel like there was this ever-so-slightly hidden fact about the world that we have now uncovered, but having uncovered it, we understand it because of the story. Here's some recent examples of these stylized facts. Hurricanes with female names kill more people than hurricanes with male names because of sexism. People don't take female-named hurricanes as seriously as male-named hurricanes, so they don't prepare or evacuate. Hurricanes are deadlier than himicanes. Or this one. Calming background music on the playground reduces bullying among children because background music affects mood, moods that lead to bullying. Or how about this one from the same researcher? Energetic, happy background music that you like increases your chances of complying when asked to do mean things to people. Maybe because you're so happy from the music that you're more likely to think that the mean things that you're doing aren't going to be that bad. Both results hold up to the rule of statistical significance. For Brian Nosek, it wasn't just about one failed replication. How many other stylized facts out there don't hold up to scrutiny under replication. So Brian Nosek tried to find out. 
this was a community effort of 270 co-authors and another 85 people that contributed to try to get an initial estimate of the reproducibility of psychological science. People volunteered their time to do a replication of a sample of studies from three journals uh, that were published in 2008 in the psychological literature. Brian Nosek and his team took a sample of 100 studies from 2008. And each study increased their sample size or their measurement accuracy, or both. Measurement accuracy just means that. You're trying to find better ways to measure what you're looking for. For example, and I'm just making this up, if you were trying to measure an emotional response to music, you might decide that counting foot tapping and head bobbing is more accurate a measurement than, say, a questionnaire. Or it could be the other way around. Either way, these kinds of improvements in a study are called increasing the power of the study, which means that you're trying to design your study to better detect the thing that you're looking for. And finally, most importantly, the Open Science Center pre-registered the replications. And all this means is that you're making open to the entire community ahead of time what you're doing how you're doing it, and putting all your methods and analyses on the table before you run the experiment and analyze it. And with this setup, the Open Science Center had some predictions about how many studies ought to be replicated. Just with the basic standards, we would anticipate that about 5% of published results are false positives. In other words, you would expect 5% not to replicate. That's sort of our willingness to tolerate false positives. If the rule of statistical significance, p less than 0.05, were as accurate as everybody thought, you should have 95% of the studies you publish replicate successfully. In fact, it should be more than that. Because if you remember, some of the results are p less than 0.01, like the 50 Shades of Grey study. Some are even lower than that, so really, even more should replicate. Out of 100 studies, they should have gotten almost all of them replicated, by the established standards of the field. I had thought I was making a pessimistic prediction when I said we'd probably get 50%. Brian Nosek was way less optimistic because he knew things that we don't. More on that later. There was also a dispute about what counts as a successful replication. Do you have to have the same standards as last time, P less than 0.05? Or can something count as a replication if it's close enough? Nosek and his team just decided to be as inclusive as possible with different measures of deciding whether the replication result was successful or not in reproducing the original result, we got between 30 and 40 percent of the original results successfully reproduced in the replications. In the large-scale crowdsourced replication, with high standards for what counts as replication, 30 of the studies were replicated. And with lower standards, 40. So the accepted standards of publication in the psychological sciences is about 30 to 40% accurate. Sort of. The replication effect sizes were about half the size on average as the original studies. So that's a a large magnitude change, is that we really see reduction almost across the board. There were very few of the experiments that were able to obtain the same size uh, of a result as the original studies. Remember that the effect is like whether a drug works in making you better. The effect size is how much sooner the drug gets you better. 
If the drug gets you better in six days rather than seven without the drug, it has an effect, but its effect size is small. If it gets you better in two days, that's a large effect size. So even for the studies that did replicate, the effect sizes were cut in half. That's a kind of inaccuracy, even if it's less inaccurate than not having a replication at all. That's not good. You're listening to High Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. What does a failure to replicate even mean? It doesn't mean that your earlier study is false. It could mean that the replication was the bad study and the first study was a good one. That's possible. It could mean that your original finding just held in a very, very narrow circumstance in the world and that in broader circumstances, it's not going to hold. That's possible, too. These are all legitimate questions, but I think they miss the key takeaway. Non-replication doesn't show that you're wrong. It shows you didn't know that you were right in the first place. The point is that the rule that everyone settled on to make inferences about the world from your experiment is much less accurate than you thought it was. Much, much less accurate. You're way overconfident in your original findings, even if you still think they're true. What's remarkable is the next part of the story. Even before one attempted replication took place, Brian Nosek had another idea. So we ran prediction markets on replications. He had teams of psychologists and researchers not involved in the replications to bet on which studies would replicate and which wouldn't gave them $100 each to bet in the markets. They had a paragraph description of what the question was and what the finding was, and then what the criterion of success would be, which is p-value less than 0.05 for this test. Essentially, they're buying shares uh, in different replications. And if the replication was successful, then the, the share would pay out a dollar. If it was unsuccessful, it would pay out zero. These prediction markets tell us a lot. Most importantly, I think they tell us what scientists really think about the results of these studies. You're allowing people to use any opinion or bias whatsoever they want to make a decision about what they really think. There's this really long tradition in the philosophy of belief that says if you really want to know what people believe, see how they'd bet. I think Nosek's betting market gives this alternative universe in which science is conducted in a different way where there isn't just one rule and standard for everyone to follow as to what to conclude from a study. Instead, the scientific community as a whole uses whatever background knowledge, suspicions, biases, all of these good and bad things that go into human judgments, to render their verdicts about the soundness of an experiment and its findings. It's way more subjective, yes. But is it worse? There are a couple of interesting things. One was that there's variation across the findings. Some were high confidence, right? The market prices were 83 cents, and others were low confidence, market price 20 cents. And all of them still had uncertainty, right? There were no market prices that were nearly a dollar or nearly nothing. So all this means is that there was no one study where there was a consensus view about whether it would or wouldn't replicate. So once people had finished betting, 
you could see how accurate they were at predicting which studies would replicate. If the price was anywhere over 50 cents, then it's predicting replication success. And the actual outcomes were right on target. 71% of the time, the market successfully predicted the replication outcome. And so that was an amazing result to us, which was that you can actually predict these outcomes. What is going on? Psychologists are betting against their own standards for accepting studies. They're shorting themselves and winning. From the outside, one could very uncharitably state the finding of your paper as the finding that psychologists as a whole can detect the bullshit that's going on in their <laughs> discipline. Um, you don't have to respond to that. So, yeah, it, it, is a, it is a challenging result, uh, for sure. As you can still have a charitable conclusion, which is they can identify which ones are going to be hard to replicate, okay. even though they're true. Brian Nosek is being very nice here. He could be right that the judgments people are making are that they won't find the effect in a replication, but it's still there. But what reason do people have for concluding that? Are the original studies so good that your conclusion should still stand even when a replication attempt fails? Andrew Gelman has an argument that this can't be right. The trick is that you do a mirror reflection. This is an excerpt from a talk he gave in Britain. He's asking us to think of what we would say if the replication came first and the original study came second. In that case, what we have is a controlled pre-registered study consistent with no effect, followed by a small sample study that was completely uncontrolled, where the researchers were allowed to look for anything, and they happened to find something that was statistically significant. The replications had larger samples, better measurements, and controls, and were specifically designed to find the effects that the original studies claimed to have found. If the people betting in the markets really thought that the effects were there, but the better design studies would fail to detect them, they'd be putting a lot of weight on the original studies just because they came first. You're listening to High Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. I've been talking as though these problems of replication are unique to psychology. But they're not. They're everywhere in the human sciences. In every place that reproducibility has been examined systematically, there are challenges of reproducing original results. It's not psychology, it's not social sciences, it's not life sciences, it's everywhere that it's been investigated. Now, that doesn't mean that there's a ton of data. Uh, in many places, it hasn't been on the map. The reason that the, our project in psychology got so much attention was it was the first large-scale attempt to do this with actual independent replications. But there are a lot of teams that are starting to investigate this systematically across different disciplines. Since Brian Nosek and the Open Science Center published their large-scale replication study, other fields in the human sciences are coming on board. People have now done it for economic research, which is about 60% replicable, based on P less than 0.05. But similarly, the effect sizes in the replications were all much lower, just like in psychology. And just like Nosek's betting markets when the field of economics bet on replications, 
they were 75% accurate. Something is up. Entire fields of science are betting against the reliability of their own standards. They know as a whole that something is off with the consensus standards for publishing research. But individually, research like this is continuing. As a whole, these fields are pretty good at telling us which research can be independently verified and which can't. But then why don't they just tell us that? Why is there this whole song and dance around statistical significance, P less than 0.05, publications, press releases to the media, then the public turns out to believe all this stuff that they know can't be independently verified? I try to find out. Coming up on High Nation. You're listening to High Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. Andrew Gelman of Columbia University has a blog about all of the issues I've presented so far on this show. It's at andrewgelman.com. There's a link to it on our website. Gelman believes that science as a whole should discard this rule of drawing conclusions on the basis of statistical significance. One of his reasons is that statistical significance, he thinks, is responsible for an illusion. An illusion that affects almost all of the research in the human sciences. Um, Statistical-based studies tend to overestimate effect sizes because of what we call the statistical significance filter. And that's just a mathematical bias. It's a subtle but rather profound point that explains a lot of what Brian Nosek found. Imagine that there really are 1% of people in the country that would change their vote on election day if their favorite football team won the weekend before. How would we find this out? In reality, people aren't always honest if you ask them who they're going to vote for. And they're not always honest or even knowledgeable about why they're voting for the person they're voting for. But that's the best question you have to find out. So it'll have to be good enough. And you don't have enough time to talk to everyone in the country, so you can only pick a few hundred. This is an example of a noisy measurement and a small sample. A noisy measurement means you're going to get all of these differences in how people answer that roughly picks out what you're looking for, but isn't very exact. When you combine all of this, now you have to compare two groups. Groups where their football team didn't win and groups where their football team did win. When you compare those two groups and you found in your study a 1% difference between them, even though that's in reality the truth, that wouldn't be statistically significant because you wouldn't be able to separate that from random chance. Mathematically, the only way you would get significance is if you got a huge difference. Like you had a group where 10% of the people would change their vote because their football team won. If you saw that, you'd get statistical significance and you report it. But you'd be reporting an illusion. It would be a result of the sample you happen to pick out, or due to the noise in your measurement, or both. If you get statistical significance, you lost. Because you 
became very confident in something that is just noise. But it's even worse than that. If you have a noisy study, there can be a high chance that the true effect is in the opposite direction as where you think it is, even if it's statistically significant. What this means is that if in reality, people on average got better just a little bit sooner from taking a drug, your samples and measurements could make you conclude the opposite, that the drug just prolongs the illness. Mathematically, there can be a good chance with small samples and noisy measurements that if you found significant differences between two groups, it's because you happened upon the group who took the drug but stayed sicker longer for all kinds of other reasons. Gelman thinks that this search for statistical significance is presenting researchers with an illusion, a distorted picture of reality, which turns out to be exactly the distortion that Brian Nosek found when he tried higher quality replications. Unlike Andrew Gelman, Brian Nosek doesn't conclude from the problems with statistical significance that we should get rid of it as a method of drawing scientific conclusions. It'd be paradoxical if he thought that. He used those very methods in his replication studies. They work when used correctly. My name is Deborah Mayo. I'm a philosopher of science, and I'm a professor at Virginia Tech and also a visiting professor at the London School of Economics. Philosopher Deborah Mayo is a leading researcher in the philosophy of statistics and is the most staunch defender of the original ideas behind the rules of statistical significance and p-values in making scientific inferences. Her main diagnosis is that, well, there's abuse and cheating going on. It's typical that people say, well, it's too easy to get low p-values. But notice that when they do have pre-registration, with pre-registration where they, they know in advance and they even agree how they're going to do the study, then they find it difficult. I call this the paradox of replication, that somebody says it's too easy to get p-values. Well, why? How, how come they only got about 33% replication? Is it easy or is it hard? Well, it's, it's hard if you don't cheat. The currency of science is publication. And so to the extent that getting a publication is advancing my career, then there is a challenge, a conflict of interest, when what gets published is not necessarily what's most accurate. When I'm doing my research, I'm finding things, I'm finding different ways to analyze data, I'm looking at different findings, I'm getting results here and not getting them there. And my incentives are to make that the most beautiful, clean, wonderful story I can in order to make it publishable. And science, science's interests are just tell it how it is. But because we're working on hard problems, because we're pushing out at the boundaries of knowledge, it isn't always a nice, clean, tidy, amazing, interesting story. A lot of times it's a bit of a mess. But I have to get it to be as publishable as possible. So that conflict of interest is in when I'm faced with different kinds of data, what's best for me and what's best for science may not be the same thing. It's a fundamental assumption of Brian Nosek's and the Open Science Center that the problem of replicating results in the sciences have to do with careerism. Getting funding, getting a job, a promotion. These pull away from the impartial pursuit of the truth. The problem for Nosek is not with the rule of statistical significance or p-values. It's that careerism incentivizes people to bend the rules. 
here you are doing research and you want to make discoveries and your p-value is like 0.1 instead of 0.05 that's too bad so you can do things called p-hacking 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 get the p-value less than 0.05. We all know that if you report data selectively, you will be able to find evidence for any hypothesis you want. So for example, you can throw away cases. Cherry picking. Now this happens a lot in the context of medical trials. It's a well-known problem that they like to drop out people who are getting better under the control. If it's your incentive to show that a drug works, you have to have the treatment group do significantly better than the control group. But if there's someone doing really well in the control group, that messes up your comparison. So you find some way to exclude them from the experiment. Maybe they weren't sick after all. Like in psychology, if you're trying to show that listening to Beyonce makes people happier than people who listen to Kenny G, and you're almost there, but there's this person who gets really happy while they're listening to Kenny G. You find a reason to exclude them. Like maybe they're happy because they like to listen to music ironically, and that's not what you're really testing. But then if someone is listening to Beyonce ironically and really happy... Maybe find a way to keep her in. So that's p-hacking. That's a kind of cheating. And then there's another kind. What they'll do is, let's say we tried the test once, and we found that we couldn't reject the hypothesis, but then finally the third, the fourth time we find some and we ignore the cases that didn't show the result and we only report the ones that did. That's typically what goes on. In fact, the probability of finding at least one statistically significant result by chance alone can be very high depending on how hard you try. This is called the file drawer effect. A single researcher runs a study multiple times all of the failed attempts they stick back into their file drawer, and the successful ones they end up publishing. From the outside, it looks like you ran one study and got a significant result, when in reality you very selectively showed your wins and not your losses. The file drawer effect works at a large scale without any nefarious intentions from researchers. Journals just aren't interested in publishing studies that failed, and there's a good reason for that. It isn't true that eating bacon makes you earn more money. Do we need a published study to tell us that? If any researchers tried and failed to find that and stuck the failed study in their file drawer, then the people who happened by chance to find the population of bacon munchers that made a lot of money, they're going to look like they found something original and interesting. The p-values are no longer legitimate. The, the ones that you report are spurious p-values. So that's cheating. And then there are things that are not quite cheating, but also not quite kosher either. Optional stopping. Optional stopping is like playing rock, paper, scissors with a friend. And then when you lose, you say, hey, best two out of three. And then when you lose that, you say, hey, best three out of five. And then when you finally win, you get congratulated for a fair victory. In experimental science, sometimes this is called data peaking. You run an analysis after studying 100 people, but your results are just iffy, right on the borderline, not quite statistically significant. So then you add another 50 subjects, and then boom, you get statistical significance. So you report that you ran a study of 150 people and got a result. 
Is it cheating or is it not? Well, here's two ways to look at it. The first way is, yeah, it's cheating. You're selecting your sample size for the sole purpose of succeeding in your study. Just like in the case of rock, paper, scissors. Here's another way to look at it. I could have just as easily decided to study 150 people rather than 100. As long as those 50 people are randomly chosen subjects also, what's the big deal? Multiple comparisons. Suppose you're trying to find out if Beyonce makes you happier than listening to Kenny G. And you don't find anything. Another thing you can do is break up your data. So we analyze all people. We found in this effect for men, but not for women, or just for women or not for men. There was a study that didn't find statistical significance. This was the study saying that women were more likely to wear red clothing during a certain time of the month. They looked and they found that they had data on two different days, and one day was a warm day and one day was a cold day, and it turned out there was a difference between the two days. And once you find a difference in the data when you break it up, you can then report, women are likelier to wear red on cold days when they're ovulating. Even though originally you were trying to figure out whether they're likelier to wear red in general when they're ovulating. You can change what your threshold is. There was the example of the study where the sociologists claimed that more beautiful parents were more likely to have girl babies. The attractiveness of the parents was rated on a one to five scale, and he compared the fives to the one through fours, and he got statistical significance. But if he had compared the ones to threes to the fours and fives, he wouldn't have got it. Or one and two to three, four, and five, he wouldn't have found it. He found the one comparison. Again, iffy if it's cheating or not. I mean, on the one hand, you can say it's cheating. You were looking for something, you didn't find it. So you're looking to your data and you're finding something to publish. Another way of looking at it is to say, well, you gathered all this data, you didn't end up finding something that you wanted to find, but there's all these interesting patterns that I did find. I'm going to go and report that, because those patterns are definitely real. You're listening to High Nation, a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. These multiple comparisons, or optional stopping, or excluding people from your study... They're not always explicit attempts, after an analysis, to hack your way to a result that achieves statistical significance. Sometimes you make decisions about this stuff beforehand, or you make your decisions as you run an experiment before you even analyze the data. People have very good reasons for making the decisions they do. Maybe when people rate couples on a scale of one through five, you really should only count the fives as attractive because they're all so much more attractive than the fours. Maybe you should exclude people from your study who marked, I'm extremely happy on every question in the survey, because they weren't paying attention. It's like you're, 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 you're walking through a garden, right? And you choose different paths. Like, each time it, it seems to make sense. Gelman's worry is that even when the decisions make sense, other decisions would have made sense too. If they would have helped you, had your experiment turned out differently. You look at your data and you do just one analysis. But if your data had been different, you would have done a different analysis. And if your data had been even different, you would have done a different analysis. Are attractive parents the ones rated a 5 or the ones rated 4 as well? You might have good reason to think in your study it's the 5s. But would you have had good reason to think it was the 4s and the 5s if it turned out that that was the most convenient way to classify attractiveness when your data came out? 
There's no dishonesty here. It's just a kind of motivated reasoning. To fight that, you have to consider the decisions you didn't make and how they would have affected your final results. And so Gelman has a solution to this problem, which people call the problem of researcher degrees of freedom. After you run your numbers for statistical significance, pretend you made different decisions and run the numbers for those decisions. Then you can see just how fragile your result turns out to be. We're not interested in isolated significance results. You have to show that you can generate significant results at will. You can generate results that rarely fail to be statistically significant to show that you have demonstrated an actual effect. This is the deeper problem. When you're trying to detect things, real things, real effects among human beings, and your particular test says, yeah, it's there. To be sure, or at least sure enough to tell everyone in the world, it can't be too easy for you to have failed to detect it. In all of these cases of single studies where people find significant results, the problem is never that the effects aren't there. Even if you're right and they are there, your test isn't good enough for you to know that. It's not a problem of truth. It's a problem of knowledge. Knowledge can't be that fragile. You're listening to High Nation a show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. And so back to our question from our previous episode. Where is parapsychology in all of this? Here's Matthew Makel, psychology researcher at Duke University and former student of Daryl Bem, the parapsychologist who claimed to have found ESP in 2011. The general consensus of the skeptics of the field say what Bem really demonstrated was researcher degrees of freedom. Because in, in his multiple experiments in the 2011 paper, they have different numbers of participants. Why? Was it that he collected 50 and then looked, no, it got something significant, we'll stop. And then if he collected 50 and it wasn't significant yet, did he say, let's collect 25 more and then peak again? Is I think he was doing what has largely been the accepted practice of the field for decades. These practices are changing with the advances at the Open Science Center and the move towards pre-registering studies and a more knowledgeable application of statistics. And I heard a rumor, which I can't substantiate, that there will be pre-registered, high-powered studies in parapsychology very soon as well. I'll keep you updated. I want to close today with some thoughts. There's a very old debate in philosophy about how to trade off being right and not being wrong. One thing we can do is drown ourselves in a sea of ideas, mostly false ones, in the hopes that we find that one insightful, true nugget of wisdom we wouldn't otherwise find if we were too cautious. If we did that, we end up believing more true things but a lot of false things as well. 
we'd be credulous. Or we can build a very strong border wall and do extreme vetting of ideas to keep out all the false ones so that only the true ones get in and were never duped or harmed. If we did that, we'd be skeptical. We're not going to be wrong very much, but we might not have much to believe either. Raising the standards of publishing results in science, finding out the right rules to draw conclusions in science, it's the same issue. How much is too much falsehood to allow in pursuit of the truth? Scientists are arguing right now about the right trade-off. But philosophers haven't settled this issue amongst themselves either. The only rule of thumb I can give is when you read the next cool scientific finding, think about whether you want to be more credulous or more skeptical. Deborah Mayo's blog is at errorstatistics.com. Andrew Gelman's blog is at andrewgelman.com. The Center for Open Science is at cos.io. All are linked to on our website. Visit hifination.org for a complete reading list and soundtrack for this episode. This episode of Hi-Fi Nation was produced, written, and edited by Barry Lamb. Production assistance from Shanna Andraus. Support for this episode was made possible by the Humanities Writ Large Fellowship at Duke University. Visit us at hifination.org. That's H-I-P-H-I nation.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Now you can listen to Hi-Fi Nation with the free Radio Public app. It's a great app for finding and following podcasts. And it also has curated podcast playlists from interesting people. They're like mixtapes, but for podcasts. I've created one myself, which you can listen to right now in Radio Public. Just go to radiopublic.com slash hi-fi nation. You can download the app for iPhone or Android, and you can hear the shows that I chose as some of my personal favorites.